Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clip. Get that high energy up, you know. Maybe this is. I mean, know, this is a sad episode. These are true. like some sad movies. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe a resigned and somber tone is yeah. is finally appropriate. Maybe, maybe we can stop joking for once. Yeah, we can drop this humorous facade that we have been carrying throughout this whole run of the podcast, where we have fun talking about movies instead yeah. of the the reality of it. That it's just. Movies just make me sad. It's the man. dregs of our existence. <laughs> this is the memorial episode. You know, it's not. We're usually celebrating movies. To, today, we celebrate their death. Rest in peace to extended <laughs> clip. It's episode 119. I was one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I was Malcolm Baum. I'm still JT White. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a little hopeful. You know, sometimes yeah. sometimes you got to give them a little hope at the end. Absolutely. Uh, our double feature this week. Features two sad, tragic clowns. Limelight, the 1952 swan song by Charles Chaplin. And Hardly Working, Jerry Lewis's film from 1980 or 1981, depending if you're European or American. This is, as I said, a double feature about sad, tragic clowns. Uh, Late in their careers, you know, people who used to decades before thrill America with their gags in front of and behind the camera making you know goofy comedies that had a sentimental streak in them that just kept winning every time out but you know uh, America eventually fell out of love with each of these auteurs uh, Charles Chaplin through a combination of the the filthy harassment of the US government uh, regarding his political sympathies and Jerry Lewis, because I guess comedy kind of just went away for a while there during the the new Hollywood era, <laughs> uh, or at least his style of comedy. So what do we have? We have Limelight and Hardly Working. We have two uh, kind of autobiographical films or films that you could read that way, even though both author would say, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, two films that, have quite a bit of humor in them, but are overwhelmingly just kind of sad. <laughs> and uh, yeah, two two trips down memory lane from two of the all time greats. How would you guys like these movies? Yeah, I mean, like JT said, you know, they are a little little bit downbeat, but I did enjoy these movies quite a bit. And I mean, yeah, these movies they pa- they pair it perfectly with each other because this is like right when and you know their careers are almost over at mm-hmm. this point. But at this point, the movies that they make after this are just so sour <laughs> yeah. and, and just kind of, I don't know, especially with Chaplin, right? With the limelight, you know, even with Mont- Monte Verdu is already a kind of dark, but it, it's a little bit more playful, I mm-hmm. guess. Whereas this, I mean, I mean, it's kind of hard not to read autobiographically, you know yeah. what I mean? Even if they uh, say differently, because there's just a... Uh, you you get the sense that kind of time have has passed these people by and their mm-hmm. styles are still there. They're still very strong, you know, and that's what's interesting about that, seeing how their styles mutated. But it's, I feel like everything here is just played a little bit more stiffly in both movies. It's a little bit oh, more yeah. <laughs> stiff and just uh, slow. slow. And it's, 
I feel like it's it's they're both very audience centric. I mean, Lewis is someone who looked up to Chaplin, so it makes sense that they both mm-hmm. kind of have similar sensibilities. But with both these movies, I feel like they're very audience conscious and are very like trying to make the audience maybe go you know go at their pace, go a little bit slower, a little mm-hmm. bit, a little more ornery. And uh, I, I think that's just very fascinating. Yeah, I like going into this. I knew limelight was going to be pretty sad but like hardly working is just sad in like such an entirely different way (laughs) like less like less intentional than limelight it feels like and it's just like both of these movies aren't all that funny there are funny Mm -hmm. parts there but it's just i don't know it's uh uh, sometimes it's uh, nice to just sure. mourn with your favorite comedians. <laughs> I would say Limelight's not that funny at all. Well, hardly Working definitely has some. Yeah, some hardly, working, yeah hardly Working has some, some all-time yeah. gags in it, despite yeah. a lot of stretches that are just like so dry <laughs> and slow. But I guess the the kind of nightmare fuel quality of those scenes where the jokes don't quite hit. Uh, whether or not they make you laugh, they definitely amplify the laughs that actually do hit by contrast. But with Limelight, we'll start with Limelight as it's definitely the more respectable of the two pictures. <laughs> uh, it's it's really just like a, a big drama. It, it, it's a, something that, you know, Monsieur Verdoux also does, but w- with more of a, a message behind it. And uh, his previous films that had messages behind them were, you know, more more of uh, just comedy films in their structure. Just comedy as a genre, let alone having that little tramp there up on screen making you laugh every second he's on there, if you're someone like me, at least. Um, so th- this one really announces itself as such, though, because we see something like a decrepit, uh, old, almost dead tramp bit to open the film as we see uh, Charlie trying to unlock the door to his apartment while very drunk and a couple of kids kind of watching him and being very amused as he, you know, tries and fails to fit the key in the door several times and it's such a slow bit and he's just like once he gets in the apartment he's waddling around too but he's not gonna like take any insane pratfalls or anything like that and he's it's just all it kind of announces itself right away the pace at which the movie's gonna go oh yeah and i think i mean let alone that which is like yeah i think that's a good like tempo starter but like kind of even like going into his dreams Mm. And like, you know, or, you know, just the flashback performance scenes or whatever. There's such a, um, yeah, they're like slow and they're kind of like, I guess, very, very bare in mm-hmm. a way. Like these, you, you have the classic, you know, chaplain center frame and he's on stage and it's like, you know, the makeup kind of looks a little just, you know, since he's older, the, the you know, it, makeup looks a little bit more foolish mm-hmm. on him. And it's just, and we get just this straight up performance from him you know, you know, that he's fantasizing about. And yeah, there's just something, I don't know. It's his classical style kind of stripped down to its bare essentials. We're Chaplin center frame. We're going to follow him with the camera and let's just see him on stage work for like five minutes. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, I don't know. You get a lot of thoughts while seeing something like that, especially, you know, with the history of Chaplin. And it's, I don't know if these scenes, they're somewhat, they're pretty entertaining. They're not necessarily... Uh, funny but it's just it kind of gives you that uh the feeling of a kind of like reflection and you know thinking about his past and seeing where he is now and then 
you know, it's funny then the character that Chaplin kind of plays in the move, like, movie, you know, would have killed to have the success that Charlie Chaplin himself did. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, you know, I guess that's, that's another case, but well, just, that leans yeah. more into the reading that this is more about his father, a, a music hall comedian who did fall from grace largely due to his alcoholism around the time the film takes place. You know, it's a few years before uh, where his father dies, and then around the time the film takes place, Chaplin is just arriving in America making films. Uh, So it kind of, yeah, there's multiple ways, of course, to read this character of Calvero. And I think that just enriches uh, how dense this movie is, whether you're reading it just as a fictional character, uh, as an amalgamation of Chaplin and his own father and the other, you know, old music hall comedian legends that he saw when he was just a young boy. I didn't know that. Yeah, that that uh, his father, I guess, hey, talent runs in the blood, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, yeah, that's 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 very interesting. And yeah, it you know, it's watching you know kind of the beginning of the movie it kind of it's it moves slowly and it doesn't really go any i mean it provides a lot of insight into the character you know psychology and i, and I think that's the focus here kind of Chaplin and you know the woman he you know has saved uh from killing herself you know through you know putting on the the gas oven and locking the door or whatever you know we kind of just see them kind of chill in his room they both kind of talk about what the future could be, you know what I mean? And it's, it's a very kind of uh, I don't know, like a, like I, like I've said before, kind of a downbeat feel to, you know, the sh- them thinking about performing and thinking about all the things they do. And eventually that will all come, but it's, it's interesting to just to kind of have the characters just kind of chill out in a room and just kind of mm-hmm. steam for a good 40 minutes. And like, I mean, while this is like pretty miserable, them sort of stewing and like being uh, like clearly, um, in like a low point for their careers, like Chaplin's character still is like relatively like positive about mm-hmm. life. It's uh, I don't know, neat to see. I mean, it kind of makes him feel like a little bit more sad yeah. because it's like, he's really trying to sell to herself that or sell to her and himself that life is still worth living. And just like Chaplin is a performer in this, like it's only like five years after Verdue, but like he is such an old fucking man in this. Yeah. Like you see it on his face, on his hands. There, like I was noticing in one scene that happens in like a bar later on. Like he has like noticeable like liver spots, and it's just uh, I don't know. It's a uh, it's nice to see him so spry and active still. But like, <laughs> he, your old buddy the tramp is old now. Oh yeah, and I, I, you know, him kind of talking positively at the beginning, you know, kind of success mindset. It's like, uh, you know, you got to go out and get it. You know, ba- basically, it's so interesting him talking that way. And then whenever he's faced with something regarding the industry, you know, him performing or whatever, such the most sour grape you can find. <laughs> yeah. You know, when it comes to the, he's. He hates the he has so much contempt for the people who kind of run, you know, the circuits he's in. And he has, I don't know, he'd rather not work with anyone. But, you know, I guess that's also him, his dignity feeling injured. I don't know. It's it's a very interesting contrast of, uh, you know, how positive he is with this girl. I guess you kind of have to, you can't tell her negative things. She just tried to kill herself. So I guess you can't be like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> but it just, I, I don't know. It, it That's a... It's just an interesting thing that Chaplin plays with that. So if you don't know uh, what the film is about, despite our 
discussion of the first act pretty much uh chaplin stars as a washed up former tramp comedian called calvero uh who as we said saves his young ballerina neighbor from an attempted suicide and he physically and psychologically brings her back to full strength as she went into paralysis that i guess was purely psychological and it's like Chaplin's just like oh mental illness no fucking way you gotta dance <laughs> uh, but yeah the the slow physical and mental recovery is very sweet uh, and they both set out to make their kind of triumphant returns to the stage but time kind of wears thin and Calvero isn't what he was and despite uh, th- this woman Terry's deep love for him his kind of lacking presence on stage uh kind of makes him feel like everything is just kind of a pity party for him he, he knows that his prime is past and you know terry's gonna be the star of the ballet and he's just gonna, gonna be a supporting character that they just throw him in as a favor and he's like well you know while, while we're at it i bet she's just like that with me anyway she doesn't actually love me she's just you know being like these managers so he sets her up he just pawns her off on an actor played by his son, Sidney Chaplin, <laughs> uh, a guy who was a composer that uh, this woman Terry had a crush on years before, who ends up, you know, in their theatrical troupe by the happenstance of movie magic. So it's really sad halfway through is like you have this kind of triumphant return for Terry and we see her beautiful like audition in this stark black and white and you just see uh, Calvero's facial expression slowly turn sour over the course of it and he's like he was happy for her but at the same time he just knows it's all over for him and he just he just ditches her and it's so hard to watch the moment where like she's finally like on the stage again and like she has that little moment of anxiety beforehand where she like thinks her legs are like paralyzed again and he like sort of slaps it out of her like that's the most tense i think i've ever been watching dancing or ballet cuz i was not sure yeah. like whether or not she would actually like she would fu- like <laughs> with a movie like this she could like oh, completely definitely. fuck up and get ruined but like I-, I don't know it's just amazing that he can uh, create like a tension like that in something like I don't know that's simple and beautiful and yeah and I think it's interesting like this kind of thread of her kind of finding success on him kind of fading away that's something that you know a lot of movies might just kind of settle down and let that focus and let that be kind of the main thing and that's I mean I think it gives it well enough attention but it is it's just kind of one aspect of kind of Calvero's kind of career journey you know what I mean Mm -hmm. he's kind of you know, as I said before, he's just the way he shit talks everyone and the way the industry works. And then, you know, he's kind of back in it and it's just, you know, he's not really getting much appreciation. He goes under a different name. You know, his agent tells him to do that because his name's, you know, no fucking good anymore. And he's just kind of seeing what it's like to be back at square one. And he's, you know, he's already fed up. Like, I love like kind of the audition scenes kind of before where like Chaplin's kind of um, using like the dark and like the dark and light of a stage. I, I just love like those, you know, those very kind of contrasty black and white compositions of like the intensity of the stage light, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and then the darkness where, you know, the parts of the stage are not lit. And that's where Chaplin's hanging out. Ch- you know, Chaplin's in the cracks and the crevices and the darkness of the stage kind of it's the phantom of the music. Ex- exactly. <laughs> and it's just like, I, you know, I remember, 
what it's like, what it's like to, you know, all those lights shine upon me. And, and, and he obviously doesn't want to, his character, I guess is great. Cause he doesn't want to luxuriate in that. He doesn't want to like sit down and be like, you know, Oh, woe is me. You know, I should be out there. He wants, he wants to earn it, but he knows he's not at that point anymore. And that's, uh, that's why he hits the road. That's why he's like, you know what? This love ain't real either too. You know, if everything else is kind of just being served to me, it's like, I, I, I want out. It's not, it's not enough. And we've both talked about like the style of the audition scene, that like really stark black and white, but there's a couple of other things I really like stylistically. One is uh, early on when Terry is telling him the story of her and Neville, when she was working at the sheet music store and would give him extra sheet music and stuff like that. This flashback is told entirely like with voiceover running over it. So he kind of just shoots it like a silent movie with voiceover over it. And I just found that really interesting because then when it cuts back to the end of her telling that story, you get that great little first real sour monologue about his romance uh, from Chaplin talking about how... Life is a local affair. I can see it happening. You'll be at the height of your success and he'll call on you and tell you that he met you at the Duchess of Who's It's supper party. Won't I recognize him? Oh, no. He's grown a beard. Musicians do. He'll tell you he's composed a ballet for you. Then you'll realize who he is. You'll tell him who you are and how you met and how you waited on him and gave him extra music sheets. And that night, you'll dine together on a balcony overlooking the Thames. It'll be summer and you'll be wearing pink muslin. And he'll be conscious of its fragrance. And all London will be dreamy and beautiful. And in the elegant melancholy of twilight, as the candles flutter and make your eyes dance, he will tell you that he loves you. And you will tell him you have always loved him. And, you know, the camera is just like slowly dollying in on him as he's saying that. And it's the the contrast of his silent style and now, you know, moving forward in time, utilizing more camera movement and stuff like that, that he didn't do early on when it was more stripped down. Also, uh, after he, you know, joins the ballet with Terry and you, you see the first rehearsal, it ends in this crane shot that pulls all the way back and then a match cut into the first performance. But I don't know, just the, the, the crane shot just felt so precise uh, in a grand way that I wasn't used to from Chaplin movies. But then you go into that performance and I don't know, it's this weirdly like angular set mm-hmm. where everything is like warped and like German expressionism almost, <laughs> uh, despite this taking place, you know, before that, I guess. And, I don't know. It's just such a such a crazy thing to watch. Uh, just as you know, kind of in the back of his head, uh, Calvero's just getting ready to get the fuck out of there, pretty much. And I love that scene too because it's very like it's about giving you know kind of Calvero's point of view and like mm-hmm. makes make goes out of its way to show kind of like the transition between like kind of play sets or whatever. You kind of get that you know behind the scenes you know type of feel to it that Calvero's you know been seeing for for quite a while and it's just i don't know like i I think uh it utilizing that you know just really kind of adds to where you feel calvero's at and yeah like i guess with like the camera movements too there's like a couple moments earlier on where he's using kind of like these succinct 
very like slow moving zooms for flashbacks mm-hmm. and uh yeah it it's it, yeah like a chaplin he doesn't go crazy here with the camera movement yeah. but he, he you know he pulls a couple things uh out of his bag oh gets, you know, in, c- gets yeah. a couple new tricks yeah mm-hmm. and also one thing i was thinking about especially with him telling you know that story of terry and you know the 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 piano man or whatever is that you know chaplin guy who dated younger woman himself you know it is like there is like there is like the conflict in this movie of mm-hmm. like kind of being an older man yeah. dating a younger woman that's something I mean, he really made this real. when he was you know settling in with his final child bride uh, yeah. <laughs> now uno o'neill was of age when they married yeah <laughs> no yeah just him kind of like having that awkward feeling it's like sh- like should i be interfe like this is this girl should fall in love with like another guy her age like I, am i like mm. preventing her from like living an actual life just by being like an old guy who complains all the time. It's like, why does she want to be with me? You know, he, he like him not realizes like, what, what am I worth? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like the conflict there and he doesn't quite have an answer to that. I mean, he feels better when he's working, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but he has that much more positive mindset when he's just working on the street, just mm-hmm. grinding. But I also love the uh, the rear projected stuff because it takes place in England, but was shot here in the states. Uh, you know, ironically, shot this in the states for London, and then kind of got trapped in London when he went to the premiere of it in the U.S. Denied his reentry, and that's when he had to, you know, make do as a fugitive and settle down in Switzerland. But um, and that, of course, led to the film, you know, uh, not being shown very widely here, uh, really until like 20 years later did it get a proper wide release. And uh, it was kind of the, the beginning of the end for the old tramp. And speaking of the beginning of the end, this film, uh, the, the third act, we see him wandering the street, collecting money, playing music for the troops, I guess, or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it's it should be embarrassing, but it's not because Calvero has lost all of his dignity as well as his money and his love and he's just out on the street and as he said it's the tramp in me i suppose which is such a heartbreaking Mm. line yeah um but then he gets his teary-eyed reunion with terry and she gets him to perform once more and you know uh he, he just wants to show him that he's not through he doesn't need any charity he doesn't need anything else he just wants to show him that he's not through and him and his old buddy uh, so, so some dude he's been working with on the street have been cooking up a new routine. His name's Buster Keaton. And uh, so the movie ends then. We see Keaton and Chaplin at their big uh, tribute show, basically, performing together. And it's so, like, I don't know. It's I think it makes a point of showing how kind of out of time it is. Like, it's yeah. it's amusing and it's pretty funny you know <laughs> yeah it's more than anything just like wow these two guys are on screen together like that's insane kind of uh but more than anything it's just kind of sad to watch uh despite them getting the uproarious applause uh and i it, then terry goes on stage uh after chaplin has a heart attack mid-performance and he watches her as he dies happily and that is just like I don't know, man. That, yeah. that, that, that hit me. That that ending really hit me like a pile of bricks. Quite a sad one. Yeah. I mean, just to unpack it, I guess. I mean, the performance itself. Yeah. There's there's something definitely kind of off about it. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's like kind of Keaton and Chaplin's 
I don't know, just the repetitive nature of the fir- like kind of the first uh, act of the joke or whatever, kind of like how long it kind yeah, of I takes. Mean, yeah, to... and you like see him playing all the old riffs that he's doing like mm-hmm. in the beginning yeah, true. Uh, as well. You, you you get a little of that played back. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that it is like he's playing the hits, you know, I mean, it's really trying to, you know, you're seasoned just like him at this point. And like, yeah, it like them, you know, kind of in the dressing room and Buster Keaton's like, like fuck all these people telling me it's oh it's just like old time like these are people who like forgot us essentially and are now trying to treat us like we're vintage you know it's weird and then even like you know me kind of i think i was saying such an audience based movie you know wanting kind of like audience affection and like responding to it in ways the audience is so intensely responding to it to the point where it's like almost strange to me and i guess it's just kind of showing you how intoxicating that an audience response can be like yeah. how how uh, you know i guess it's a little over the top but it's just like yeah this is the kind of the high we're riding you know what i mean and like making it feel kind of intense kind of uh i you know just giving it that edge i guess really just shows you know how much how much you'd want that i mean that's the only time isn't it where you see him like killing like yeah exactly. uh, it's like all the like previous shots of the audience like the first, I think, time they do the flashback where there's like fucking no one there yeah. is miserable. And then you get one where like just people are talking like uh, when he gets the show like from his agent earlier where it's like people are just fucking talking over him. Yeah, him bombing because you, all, all you see him perform as is in his dreams. And it's mm. like, oh, you realize these are nightmares where no one's at the show. He's just performing to empty music halls. And then the nightmare comes true, but even worse at that yeah. middle sex gig where he's just bombing his ass off and it's just so hard to watch. And at first he tries to hide the fact that he even took the gig before breaking down to Terry that they walked out on him just like America walked out on the little <laughs> tramp himself. Someone just wants to keep riffing. That's so admirable, but I don't know. Some, yeah. Maybe you just lose what's funny. You know, it's crazy like Chaplin and Keaton in this movie, like... Is that the first time there's been like some expendables like level <laughs> style like comedy stuff? expendables. That's like that's literally <laughs> crazy. That yeah. like they're just like we got it. We got to cut a scene together. Let's like all star game level shit. And I guess I guess people were not exactly interested in these guys. You know the time this was released, which kind of gives it a different feel. It was a different time. It was pre cinematic universe stuff, and yeah. people didn't want. <laughs> they weren't ready for the clash in the Chaplin Keaton universe. Yeah, they saw it more of a wild hog scenario. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they should have known better. Or hey, maybe we should have known better. Maybe wild hogs is actually great, but we'll never know. Uh, I really was taken aback by this. As you can tell, I don't have too much to say because it was just kind of a really emotional experience for me, uh, especially having read the Chaplin autobiography and how much that, you know, around this time of his career, he's not really talking about the movie at all. He's just talking about his personal life because it's like, you know, he had this paternity suit and he had all these people, you know, ramping up all these things about him being a communist, even though he says a billion times in his book, I am not a communist. Uh, <laughs> let's let's make that clear. All you red extended clip listeners. Uh, don't, get, don't get your hopes. Up, you know. uh, look, the man is just a humanist. He, he's just an anti-war uh, crusader. He's a peacemonger, as he says in his book. Uh, and he's just a man who unfortunately couldn't find peace in America after uh, the Verdue era. And he did find peace, though, living with his herd of children and his young wife in Switzerland. And you know what? 
pour one out for the tramp if you got if you got a drink in hand. Uh, I'm giving this one five little tramps. Yeah, pour it on the flow right now. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna give this one four bullets. I mean, it's just like I, I I like it, and then you know, I guess it's not like a masterpiece to me because there's just some parts that are just so slow and so like, and I guess that's the intended effect, but it it is just like. I don't know. It's it's very interesting to have an artist kind of struggle with the fact that they're, you know, past their prime, whether it's, you know, Chaplin's drawing from his own experiences, basing it off his father. It's probably a little bit of both as, you know, mm-hmm. art is. But so it's just it's it's interesting in the ways he kind of uh, deals with that. And yeah, it's, it's really sad. And I, I think I also think this movie, like definitely it's a, an auteurist classic, right? Because yeah. it's I think you have to be familiar with Chaplin's work. I, I think it could work outside of that, but of course this this just hits harder when you're familiar with Chaplin's work. And I don't know. I, I like late style movies like that where, I don't know, it's it's given, it's, you know, with, for lack of a better term, it's fan service or it's just, it's dedication to the people who have kind of watched all his movies. It's like, well, now I'm playing off, you know, those instincts that I've, you know, you found in other ones. So yeah, ve- Great movie. JT, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going uh, four and a half bullets on this one. It's weird that he made like, is it like just two after this? Like two features? Mm -hmm. Because this feels like really like, I don't know, like a final statement. Yeah, I mean, he was saying it was going to be his last one. Apparently he was telling his kids while they were on the set, like, don't worry, this is the last one I'm going to (laughs) make, you know? Uh, And he did, it was a family affair. He got a lot of his kids involved in this movie. You know, it's funny. I was reading. It's we we both. I think this is a great pick because, like, I've been reading Jerry Lewis's book, Total Filmmaker. You've been reading Chaplin's book. Jerry mentions Chaplin a lot in this, and he he mentions, I think, a Countess in Hong Kong, which is after this, right? And he kind of blames. He's like, you know, I still like it. Like critics were a little too harsh in it, but it's like I think, you know, Chaplin. He got eight kids running around on set. You know what I mean? He's kind of like he's like. He's like Chaplin's a little off now because he, you know, he brings his whole family to set. He's like, that's not something you should do. But <laughs> wow, <laughs> lessons from the master. He doesn't phrase it like that, but he's just like the way Jerry runs things. It's like Jerry's yeah. definitely not runs having his ship. fucking yeah. kids come on to set. But it's yeah. hard to be a father and a filmmaker. But Chaplin, like ultimate humanist, so it makes sense that he's doing stuff like that. We'll be right back on extended clip. Knowing I'm doing this sort of thing might upset her, although I don't mind it. There's something about working the streets I like. It's the tramp in me, I suppose. I don't know. I was watching this this Japanese movie, Emperor Tomato Ketchup, I think, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's by, I don't know, a director that's like, I don't know, he has people in his corner or whatever. And like, it was like a Stereo Lab album title. And I think I was just- That's a, what I knew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. And I was just in a, a random mood. So I was like, I'll just put this on. And it was just like, it was so like, it wasn't bad. Like it had some things that I liked about it, but like, it's like about like this boy or what boy or whatever who's like being like I don't know raped by like these people of like the nooses and it's just like way too much little boy penis in the movie you know what I mean like I was just like I have to and like I think someone in the chat was being like oh yeah that movie's great and I don't, I don't want to judge them like there are like I I kind of liked it despite all the stuff but I was just like this is making me intensely uncomfortable 
But. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading the Wikipedia description right now, and the guy who wrote this Wikipedia uh, plot was clearly getting his jollies watching this movie. <laughs> I was going like, to say, I, I thought you were about to reveal something about the director. I was like, oh, no. No, he's like a, a glamorous woman suckling on her breasts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, oh, this is yeah. Wikipedia. Clean it up. There's some <laughs> sick les action to counterbalance the... Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, okay, so I guess Stereolab named their album after the movie, and then yeah. the longer cut of the movie came out the same year as the album. Interesting. Because it interesting. only existed as a short film for like 25 years, really? and then became a featurette, I guess, a 75-minute movie in 1996. Supporting the arts. Yeah. That's, I didn't Release even... the pervert cut. <laughs> I didn't know, just to Stereolab, like a lot of their lyrics are French and just sounds nice. It's like literally all like communist shit. Which is, that's cool. But it's like, it's kind of funny because it's like in America, it's like, I don't, I feel like I would be like, I don't know. I'd be like, all right, this is a bit much or yeah. something like that. <laughs> but it's like, it, they just, hey, they have a way with the words. Dude, do you know how many times I've looked up uh, the, the lyrics of like a, you know, a European or a Japanese rock band that I'm listening to? Yeah. Zero. <laughs> I I was just like I'm listening to it for the music, baby. Sure. I've never looked at you think I've looked up Boris lyrics like what they mean? <laughs> no, I love that band. I'm not looking looking up what those lyrics mean. So well, see, dude, I'm the rap genius. <laughs> I I'm all about lyrics. That's like I, me on my Vincent Gallo. I watched every Ozu movie with no subtitles. <laughs> That's such a sick. Like critics should be making claims like that. You know what I mean? Like they should be like trying to brag about all the work they've put in and stuff like no one's no one's doing that you know maybe because they're not putting in the work maybe they're not doing that i think we're putting in the work here at extended clip we're back and it's malcolm in the middle life is unfair malcolm have you seen any good movies lately yeah you know i i did i did i i watched uh turtle vision by Hisayasu Sato. God damn it. This, I'm sorry. This title always makes me laugh because when I was a kid, I thought the song Double Vision by Foreigner was <laughs> called Turtle Vision. <laughs> well, it's, you're like Turtle Vision. Well, yeah, that's what yeah. I heard them sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was like, as like an eight year old, I was like, <laughs> you got Turtle Vision. <laughs> what did you think that meant? I have no clue. Again, look, I'm not big on lyrics, as you can that's tell. True. <laughs> Well, I, I, that's kind of the main reason I watch this movie. I'm like turtle vision. Like what is, and apparently that's the vision you see when you secretly record people having sex without their permission. I guess that's turtle vision. Cause you're hidden away in your shell like a turtle. That uh, sounds like a Hisayasu Sato film if I've ever seen. One. Well, yeah, you know, it's, I, I love like this movie ends up being great and it's like, um, the first 20 minutes, like the plot description of it is like a deranged woman gouges out the eyes of the people she has sex with basically. In the first 20 minutes, it's just like a guy recording people having sex. And you're like, is this the right movie? And then eventually <laughs> the plot kicks in. And, you know, I, I don't like with this one, because that is like a lot of Sato movies. I'll read the plot description. And then the first 20 minutes is just being like a guy filming people having sex. I guess that's, you know, when you work in certain industries, you have certain quotas you have to fill out. And that's maybe that's what he's doing there. Maybe he just has a narrative style where he likes to uh, load it in the back end. I don't know. But once once this really, I think a lot of his characters like to load it he, in the back oh, end. Oh yeah. Well, or not. Oh. Or, or, okay. Or no. I, that being that, there's a lot of rape scenes and not a lot of sex scenes. Oh jeez. Uh, Never uh, yeah. mind. Sorry. I didn't. I I don't know. I Sato's movies. They have a very particular style of like people hanging out in like dark decrepit rooms watching pornography and then and then like you know i'm gonna go out and film some and 
I don't know. Like his, like he has a very good penchant for like nighttime um, photography that I, I like in a lot of his movies. Like it seems like a lot of his movies are very nocturnal. Like they're just they take place mostly at night. And with this one, I don't know. Like he he really uh, uses color in a way, kind of using like these filters and whatnot. You know, kind of to uh, accent. You know, kind of like pinkish kind of skylines. Or, you know, just kind of, or if he's like in like kind of a more industrial kind of greenish slash grayish area, he'll let that kind of be the primary color, let that wash over. And with all of his movies, you know, you kind of have like the metaphor of like the peeping eye and the camera and like Sato has a lot of fun, you know, finding visual metaphors within that kind of like, uh, I don't know, using kind of like the... Uh, the lens of a camera, you know, comparing that to like an eye looking through a telescope, stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it's like you kind of have this nastiness to start out. And then, you know, it's not like things get cleaner, but it's like, OK, this is not just 20 minutes of people having sex. There's like a story here. And uh, I don't know. I, his movies have a kind of a particular like kind of isolating and nocturnal mood to them that I I find, you know, just really attractive and they're all like 60 minutes long. So it's like Sato's great when I'm just, I'm in a fix. I want to watch a short movie. I want (laughs) to be, you know, want to get a little depraved. I don't know. I I like him a lot. I like his movies a lot. And uh, turtle, I don't know why it's called turtle vision, but (laughs) I guess we figured that out earlier. Me and JT, we kind of went through that. (laughs) Um, I watched a, a longer film this week. Oh. It was a, a 1977 Indian classic, Amar Akbar Anthony. Um, and this is about um, like a chauffeur winds up taking a fall for his uh, crime boss employer and he gets sent to jail. And when he comes out of jail, he's like, you told me you were going to take care of my like wife and like kids and you didn't fucking do that. And he the the crime boss, Robert, sort of just shoves him aside, laughs. Um, but he's able to steal some gold and go on the run. And as he's going on the run, his like wife uh, is like trying to kill herself because she's depressed and uh, has been going through a lot. And uh, he takes the three boys and he like drives away. But um, while he's being pursued uh, by the crime boss's men, uh, they get into a car accident and the three boys are scattered and uh, Amar, Akbar and Anthony uh, all grow up with three different religious backgrounds. There's a Hindu, Amar, who becomes a cop, Akbar, the Muslim, he becomes like a, a famous singer and then Anthony is a Christian who like runs like a liquor store and the bartender Ka- says get the fuck out <laughs> this sounds sick it's like, kind of like you, us you, yeah <laughs> that's true i'm i'm the rigid atheist whereas you guys could you know fill in the blanks fill in the blanks but um but yeah it's crazy and all over the place i mean the boys like meet up again like 22 years later now i think they all for whatever reason are like uh Anthony and Akbar are friends, um, but they all wind up in like a hospital uh, donating blood to this young girl in like the title sort of sequence. 
and there's a beautiful shot where it's like framed each one of them in an individual hospital bed like pumping blood and you can see the reflecting like religious temples in the uh like windows behind them it's just crazy and goes all over the place i mean i think you can anticipate like the reunion that ultimately happens with the father but it just plays up that melodrama so well there's like a bunch of like crazy action sequences and some amazing musical numbers. There's one with like Anthony that I'm not sure I really quite get. Um, but like it's like on an Easter service thing and he like pops out of an egg and he I posted a clip on Twitter and he has just like so much swag like with like a top hat and he's just singing my name is Anthony Gonzalez and he's just like he's popping off he's the man it's uh it's a bit sacrilegious know. but it sounds, sounds entertaining <laughs> it's just a I don't know a crazy time and it like leads the like sort of final scheme and antics it's like they all wind up like with their own like sort of love interest throughout the movie um but one of them is getting stuck in this marriage to the crime boss's bodyguard or whatever and then they do some fun like costumes and stunts where they like show up as like uh different religious figures uh for like a wedding and uh, I don't know. It's it's a classic for a reason. I would recommend checking it out. I've you've really sold me on that. That sounds amazing, to be honest. But Eddie, yeah, I did watch a movie this week. Oh yeah, uh, I watched quite a few, but one is sticking with me. It's the one that I went to via the AMC A list. I've kind of inherited this segment. A list corner. <laughs> hey, we're we're both about to be in in the A list soon. JT, I'm in the A list as well. Well, hey, <laughs> for anyone listening out there, it's a great deal. You got to get it. Yeah. <laughs> and if any AMC representatives are listening out there, we really, really, really like it. True. If, if there's even whatever a, that means. If there's a list beyond this one, you know, we'd yeah. be interested in that too. Uh, so yesterday I strolled on down to the AMC Burbank 18, 16. I don't like big. the Burbank AMCs. Dude, just give them different names, not the numbers. The numbers three, are so confusing. And two of them are smaller. One of them is big in that big old downtown Burbank walking center. Yeah. I'm not calling it a shopping center because I'm not doing no fucking shopping there. Well, it's I just like what? fast food chain places. <laughs> yeah, too. It's, it's pretty like... much just like <laughs> you got like Shake Shack and like it's just all the fancy chain premium restaurants. Premium chains, dude. Yeah. No, Go it's all Burbank. premium chains. No, but yeah, so I, I went there and and it was like pretty empty when I walked into this 3 p.m. screening. And then when I walked out, it was like a billion people because there was a sold out screening of the Suicide Squad and some giant like studio test screening there. And it, it was insane because I just wanted to go back to Stillwater. <laughs> I walked out in Burbank. I wish I was back in Stillwater <laughs> or in Marseille. You know, you start in Stillwater, you go to Marseille, you go back to Stillwater. Everything's changed, man. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I saw the new film by Tom McCarthy, the auteur behind Spotlight and The Cobbler, and most recently, um, Timmy Failure, Mistakes Were Made. <laughs> I, might, I might have to look out for his career after this. This is like, does he have something in him, old Tom? 
I don't know. I feel like this might have been him, his very basic competency falling into a good movie's hands, kind of. Yeah. Uh, I thought this was a it, this was a serviceable good movie. This was like a serviceable star vehicle for Matt Damon. It is very luxuriously, or if anything, laconically paced. It's like kind of ridiculous how drawn out it is. But <laughs> yeah. I had the thought running through my head of like, you know, even if this is too slow or too long, it's like, what the fuck else am I doing with my day? I'm at the multiplex That's watching exactly. Stillwater. If you drag your ass to the multiplex to watch Stillwater, you have no right to complain about length or pace. And honestly, I think the pace is one of the best aspects of it because it kind of forces you to just sit with the meteor on set and the lack of production design <laughs> and just kind of the flatness of everything, but like not in a bad way either. It's just yeah. all kind of there. It's just like, um, I don't want to call it novelistic, but it feels like the filmmaking is so reduced to just purely pushing the plot forward and being a showcase for Matt Damon mm-hmm. in a way that somehow doesn't bother me at all. Like I actually kind of yeah. liked Tom McCarthy just getting out of his own way, letting the DP not go handheld too often, uh, come across some nice images here and there, but for the most part, just shoot this very effectively. Yeah, no, I think I think that's my reaction to. I think I might like it a little bit more than you, but it is like, yeah, it is. It's like too long, and I was just thinking, like, I was thinking, like, if I was watching this at home, like, I don't even know if I could yeah, pay attention to it. <laughs> I was thinking about that on the way home. I was just like, I'm definitely pausing this movie multiple times if I watch it at home. Yeah, and 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 like at the same time, you know, you're saying like you're going out to see Stillwater at the multiplex. You have no reason to complain. It's like. You know what? Make the movie a little bit longer. Waste, you know, a little bit more of my time. I don't have sh- I don't what, you know, what what good am I going to do with that time anyways? Yeah. But it is like a great performance by Damon in a so in a good. movie that you're right makes the smart decision and it's like kind of bases the movie, you know, on that like on his performance and you know, I think it successfully works. And you know what's funny about this movie? It's like if you see the promo for it, it's just, you know, Matt Damon, you know, in his, you know, his hick costume a little bit thicker than usual, just looking just sour as fuck, just looking upset. (laughs) And that's pretty much the, that's what the movie is. Like, like just the, those promo stills going to the AMC promenade 16, seeing a huge cardboard cutout of Damon, just looking unhappy for Stillwater. And it's like, back to my old stop. Yeah. Woodland Hills. Exactly. And like, I, I, just watching it's like yeah that's exactly what this movie is and i'm i'm entertained by that it's just funny it's kind of funny and just i don't know and like damon's uh able to get other notes from it besides just kind of funny but like just seeing him react to kind of french culture and just being like i wouldn't call this movie politically smart but it just makes a (laughs) couple no not at all (laughs) but it just makes a couple of moves that make it more interesting yeah than complaining than being like complete like liberal hogwash like it's not yeah instead of liberal hogwash i would say it wash it all kind of washes away into liberalism like it's like true yeah uh you know i said there was no production design to speak of but you know there are a couple specifics as a a friend of the pod ethan vespi pointed out in his letterboxd review uh, very carefully designed fridge magnets, including a Je suis Charlie one for uh, the the main woman in the film, um, played by Camille Cotton. Uh, and I, I do like her relationship with Damon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think McCarthy is kind of playing both sides in a way that's like not annoying, in a way that's just like kind of charming. You know, he, yeah. he's, he's a hick and they're like, oh, did you vote for Trump? And he's like, oh, I didn't even vote. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's just like, you know, once you get past that kind of stuff, it's just like, this is a, a pretty fucking deep character study for this guy, despite it seeming like a caricature, caricature performance on the surface. Uh, the more this movie goes on, I think the more it's revealed how deep Damon's performance is here. Yeah, I think I think that's that's it. It's like very impressive that this that Damon's uh, character is not a caricature. Yeah, where it's like looking at the movie that looks like exactly what it would be, mm-hmm. but it's not. And it is like its length. Even though I kind of complained about it, there is like yeah, you get to see their relationship kind of unfold or whatever, like. Because it's like he lives with this woman for a long time, you know, kind of like a non-sexual relationship. And then it eventually kind of turns into that. Mm-hmm. But you see this happen over like an, like a span of like 90 minutes within the movie. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's like it could feel a little bit bare at some times. But I guess that's what is kind of interesting about it. You know, Damon coming home, frowning, eating Subway, even though he's in, you know, he's in France. You know, yeah. he's no interest in being cultured. I don't know. It's One just, weird thing yeah. is for how long it is, how much narrative, like, uh, or how many scenes are elided completely. Yeah. Like, I guess, skip ahead 30 seconds if you have Stillwater spoiler anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you don't see her, like, uh, the, the daughter get freed at all. You just yeah. have that brief meeting with the judge who's like, or not the judge, the lady who's like, oh, the judge is going to open the case. You know, looks so, looks, looks pretty good. And then it just cuts to her return party with the Oklahoma State marching band. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all kind of like depressing too. And throughout the movie, there's a lot of skips over time like that, mm-hmm. uh, which I found very compelling for how slow other narrative beats were taken. Yeah. I mean, hey, shout out to shout out to Damon. You know, he's he's got this. He's becoming the king of the sleeper hits. That's you know what true. I mean? Downsizing, Stuck on You. I mean, those movies probably way better than Stillwater. But I'd put much Still, better. I'd put Stillwater mm-hmm. in that category. I put Stillwater. I'm happy that I went I to go th- see Stillwater. I think there's another category of like the the auteur list Damon sleeper movies. Sure. For the general public, I think it fits into these categories. But yeah. as studied auteurists, you know, uh, 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 I'm not ready what? to place McCarthy. Uh, I, I I really do I need think to McCarthy watch the slightly lucked into this because. The Cobbler is one of the worst Adam Sandler movies. I can like, believe that. It just doesn't have that Happy Madison charm at all. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's just so hard to watch, honestly. But, you know, some people got more out of it than I did. And I actually think Spotlight, it's not in a similar way to this, gets out of its own way. It kind of just lets the script do the talking. And some people fault it for that. And I don't blame them. You're watching a movie. You want to see a little visual flair. Uh, but but I actually think Spotlight holds its own as like a, just kind of a sturdy movie mm-hmm. uh, by this guy who can just yeah give him a good enough script. I think he'll make a sturdy movie. Sometimes out of it. good enough and sturdy is all you need. Speaking of sturdy, the gait with which Damon walks in this movie is very funny, as if he's wearing like extra wide underwear or something. <laughs> that, like pushes his legs apart a little bit as he walks, and it's it's very funny. So uh, it's not a waddle. It's not a comedic yeah. waddle. But if you watch it closely, you, you're gonna get hooked on it. All I all I gotta say, Tom McCarthy, not quite there yet, but I'll you know when the next movie's out that he's coming out with, you know, I'll see. It's like. I'll watch the trailer. I'll, well, I'll neither of you have seen Timmy Failure, so let's True, not speak yeah. yet. Let's. Yeah. I. I'm. I. You know. Hashtag Money Malcolm moment here. I'm. I'm willing to. You know. Maybe put Are some you betting on Timmy Failure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet. Put some money on the uh, McCarthy autourism stock as a cheap option as a sleeper cheap option you could get like for, a penny stock for yeah. a penny stock yeah maybe next movie comes out with you know that same way i'm it's doing wolf of wall street you're just like calling up auteurists 
I got this dead cheap director I could sell you, but like, he's got big returns coming. It's between me and you. When Ma came out, the movie by Tate Taylor, <laughs> oh, I was God. I was like I was like I might go see the new new Tate Taylor movie, and then I saw the trailer to that. I'm like, this looks like fucking garbage. So all right, we're running real long. Yeah, we'll sorry. be back on extended clip. Because I, I read like that we have to give like updates on the day and there was like I guess the guy who usually runs the set there's been like some COVID outbreaks so he's like I went to each department and said I don't play baseball <laughs> like there won't be any like like I think he was just trying to say like I don't play around or whatever you know trying but yeah. he phrases like I don't play baseball. That's, <laughs> so that's awesome. That rules. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I don't play baseball. I'm not trying to goof off. I don't know how you and your friends do things here, but I don't play baseball. <laughs> um, welcome back to Extended Clip. We're talking about Hardly Working, the film by Jerry Lewis. Uh, it was filmed in 1979. He had a little uh, financial problem self-producing this film. Uh, filming had to shut down for a little while. It got picked back up. Uh, it only cost like a couple million and ended up making like 40 plus million total uh, despite getting absolutely panned. I mean, this is a film that Roger Ebert said, and we've already talked about Roger Ebert on Heaven's Gate. He said Heaven's Gate was the only movie worse than Hardly Working that came out in 1981. Goodness. Which is just, oh boy. Rest in piss. Rest in piss. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the new LCJ Chaz Ebert collab though. Oh, so dude. Yeah. I can't wait for that. That's going to be so sick. So at least, you know what? I got to give him credit there. He did. There's some positivity that came through his career. It's very true. (laughs) Uh, But after it released internationally, 20th Century Fox was like, okay, we'll pick this thing up, release it in the States. Uh, They cut 20 minutes from it, apparently, which has never been seen from, uh, from what I can tell, and added the opening montage that I'm sure we all saw of him uh, working in previous jobs from previous movies. Wow. Hardly working. What a picture. Uh, Jerry is (laughs) Bo Hooper. A, <laughs> out of, what, a, what a name, by the way. But Bo Hooper is an out-of-work clown who moves in with his sister, niece, nephew, and brother-in-law when he can't find work. And what does he do? He looks for work. It's a lot like me this year. Yeah. Getting new jobs. Getting fired. Get another new job. Get fired. Get another <laughs> new job. I'm coming up on jobs five and six in the next couple of weeks. I hope you all wish me great luck. Um, you know, Jerry, this is unfortunately maybe the most relatable Jerry Lewis movie to me, which is why also it taking such a bitter tone and being such a generally depressing view is kind of just sad and i hope to one day relate more to the ladies man i mean it's just like it's painful and work sucks like he gets it yeah no absolutely i mean it's been a theme throughout all of his movies you could see through that opening montage that all of his movies are about having shitty jobs and getting put through the ringer you know chaplin is a big influence obviously modern times might be Mm -hmm. the biggest influence on jerry in terms of so many of his movies uh, have to do with just him working a job and messing up. 
you know it doesn't have to do with the faults of modernity uh and like machinery taking over jobs and stuff like that it's more of just like you put this man in the workplace he is going to cause a havoc but then when he's this old it's like yeah. he's not going to cause a havoc he's just gonna get fired yeah. <laughs> much like in limelight i mean yeah you see jerry's age on screen <laughs> oh my and that's, god and that's and that's something that is very striking i mean even the the you know the studio kind of a bad move by the studios including like the montage clip it makes the movie interesting it's a very interesting part of the movie but it's like it's like our like it's kind of implying it's like remember when jerry was killing it you know what i mean remember old jerry jerry's been killing it throughout the years and then boom he's out of like he's an out of work clown and yeah he looks he looks there's nothing there's nothing sadder than an old clown you know and what I, mean, I mean it's just like you put this like big old man in like a cardigan and shorts <laughs> there is like nothing more embarrassing looking that he could be wearing you know it's kind of a tangential thing but i've always was surprised um especially after i, I guess not after not no particular change in my opinion after watching the movie but i, I was always surprised that like him in like kind of uh in his chinese impersonation face is like the cover of the movie yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well if you look closely the poster of the movie is him wearing many hats uh kind of little parts of his costume from most of his mood from most of the jobs that he holds in the movie but predominantly it just looks like him in yellow face as a chef uh, which is a painful part of the movie to watch it's a well that's that's what kind of you know what i mean because when watching this movie, you can't help but reflect, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot, because, you know, a lot of, like, the job scenes are a bit monotonous, you know what I mean? It's like, there's some funny stuff going on here, but Jerry does get the drudgery of doing work, you yeah. know what I mean? He really hammers that home. Um, so, yeah, you, you have time to reflect. And, you know, something with, you know, kind of like the racist yellow face scene, it's like, you know, can't can't give my stamp of approval to that scene, but for it, a little context, he yeah. gets hired at a Benihana-like restaurant, yeah. and I guess part of the job is to go into Yellowface and impersonate the other Japanese chefs. And I hey, I get the instinct from a physical comedy aspect, you know, the chopping of the knives. There's something there, and the sadness yeah. of him getting degraded to this type no, of work, well, having to be a minstrel performer essentially. Yeah, that I you you said it you know more succinctly than I could, but yeah, that's basically what I'm getting at here is like, there's something that just feels so desperate mm-hmm. about. And like, yeah, there's like kind of like a, a, like, I guess not a, I guess maybe desperate is a wrong word, but it's like kind of seeing his performance and like with this kind of the yellow feast scene, he's kind of as, you know, a Benny Hanashev, he's kind of giving a more direct performance to, you know, the people, yeah. uh, you know, sitting for their food. But it's like, you know, with each kind of job thing, you know, job he gets, there's kind of like a, a, a a physical performance he gives within it, you know, that's the big joke. And it's like, you know, with kind of like the slower style of this, like kind of like these performances just kind of feel, you know, pathetic. And especially, um, you know, with given the context, it's like, yeah, this guy's just failing to do his job. And he's so old now. It's yeah, it's like same kind of like the same old jokes recontextualized and, you know, it makes you reflect. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, 
when we talked about looking for comedy in the Muslim world and we see Albert Brooks in 2005 doing these bits that he used to do on Johnny Carson in the late 60s, you know, and he just doesn't have the vigor in him anymore. It's just <laughs> kind of pathetic, but these people are still like impressed by it too. And it's just kind of a weird dissonance. And I feel like this movie has a lot of that too. So much of Jerry's classic bits involved him kind of prolonging situations mm-hmm. that you get what the joke is. And then you're like, okay, wait, but why is he still doing it? And then it keeps going and becomes funnier again. And, you know, most of the time when he wrecks uh, some stuff in a movie and, you know, one of his repeated taglines, maybe you could get it weaved, uh, comes (laughs) back here in a scene at a restaurant where he, you know, drapes this piece of clothing over this old woman and takes about three and a half minutes to get it off of her (laughs) and then gets his ring caught in her mesh. (laughs) thinking about the bellboy right a lot of messing up at work style stuff Mm. going on there but it's like there's something kind of swift to it and that's like a shorter movie it's like nothing goes down smoothly in this movie there's nothing that feel like there's nothing done with like a certain finesse that feels necessarily kind of like technically impressive there's no huge gut belly laughs although there's just some funny just naturally good gags that are not like Mm -hmm you know, about kind of like a glacial self-reflection or something. You know, there's just your classic funny gags that you have. Also, I feel like this only existing in like VHS quality. Oh, yeah. uh, Cropped, of course, from widescreen, like definitely hampers uh, its ability to be funny, but definitely helps its ability to be just a strange uh, film beamed in from space as much of a fucking, you know, cliche as that is to say. This is truly like an out of this world film. Even like the one he made after this smorgasbord is so much more coherent than this yeah and so much funnier and i think smorgasbord (laughs) is like a masterpiece it's like one of the great swan songs in cinema Mm -hmm. but this one is just like so much harsher in every aspect even the sentimental stuff feels really just defeated and deflated Mm -hmm. like when he's talking to his niece and he's like yeah you can be a clown someday you could even be the president it's just not convincing at all. Yeah. It's just, he is so clearly just saying the lines there. Mm-hmm. It feels so defeated. But then you get that gag at the gas station when he works there and he's just trying to impress the woman who uh, then becomes the love interest for the film and is just wrecking her car in a hundred <laughs> different ways. And it just kind of slowly builds one on top of the other. And yeah, maybe the pacing of it feels more like Tati than Jerry Lewis, but it culminates in being just a great physical gag. And, you know, speak on the audience, like, and I, I, I think I've been hammering on the audience, you know, because I read Total Filmmaker recently and kind of like, it seems like Jerry's perspective as any good comedian, right, is, you know, very in tune with audience reaction. And like, you kind of see that here, like, I think kind of like the bitch kid or whatever that of the love interest, who's just like a total asshole to Jerry in every turn, like slight like kind of slightly amused by his clownery but also being like let's get out of here like to his mom and and it's like i guess you know jerry's maybe i don't know maybe that's the you know the opinion of the youth nowadays you know when it comes to old jerry lewis you know i don't know if teenagers were you know going out in uh swarves to go see hardly working but it it is like i don't know i like i think i like that character because it is like kind of like a almost like a, a negative audience surrogate like kind of like someone who would watch hardly work and being like what what the fuck is this you know he's just floundering around at his job for two minutes like i i don't know i like i think that character's funny 
Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, JT, you hadn't really seen any Jerry Lewis directorial films, but you've seen them on screen quite a bit. Yeah, by now. no, I've seen most of, if not, I think I just have like a handful, maybe like two of his Tashlin movies left, and then I was going to do uh, the Jerry uh, directorial efforts. But I mean, I know like he got like a lot from Tashlin, mm-hmm. and like obviously his uh, presence is still there. Um, I mean, so as this film goes on, you just kind of see him go through job after job. Uh, one of them, a great gag, is when he works at the glass and mirror factory, and it's just a shot yeah. of the sign, and then you just hear glass crashing, and the p- camera slowly pans to two guys that you assume are his boss and co-worker just driving away from the store as everything is just collapsing and Jerry's not even in the shot at all. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just like letting things play out in long take or just kind of elongating something and just, uh, I don't know, presenting things in a way that no other like American comedy filmmaker in 1981 would present any of these gags, you know? And then I think this these sensibilities especially kind of come at like you could feel them more once you get to the mail room. You know what I yeah. mean? Oh, yeah. Because that, that's where he stays. And that's, you know, maybe some of the slower sequences of the movie happening. But I, I think it's it's very interesting, this mail, like, because, you, you know, we're there longer. And, like, Jerry does eventually become good at his job mm-hmm. there's a great montage yeah. of him getting monitored like yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> the usps auditor is at the branch watching jerry and he, he just learns how to get good at his job for once and and it's and it's right then when he's like i should definitely quit my you know <laughs> quit and like you know just be a, be a clown and like I, I love the ending sequence you know one a part where the sentimentalism actually kind of hits a little bit for me where mm-hmm. he's being a clown, he's passing around the mail, and it's and like this crowd gathers behind him, yeah. and it turns into a parade, yeah. kind of a victory lap of a finish of a movie that does not deserve a victory yes. lap. Uh, even if I love it, it's just like it doesn't seem like the movie that deserves a victory lap. But he gives it to you regardless, and it becomes so strange because of that. Yeah, exactly. There's like a strange aspect to this victory lap, but it's also it's like it's Jerry being like you know, even despite the hard times, I'm not going to change. Yeah. I'm not going to change. I'm going to be, you know, myself very individual even if it comes at a negative aspect towards my life. And, and I respect that. And just like him not changing in a sense, I think there's a weird quality to like all of the other actors in the movie feel like they're just like standard mm-hmm. like 80s like fill-in cast members and just like Jerry stands out even more than just like the age difference he has with like some of the women as well, just like um, with him and much closer to the father's age than the woman he's interested. Yeah, in. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. And just like, I don't know, adds like another, just like, why would she want to fuck Jerry? Yeah, all any she can way. say about him is that she is that he's nice. Like, I yeah. think that just shows how low of an opinion Jerry had of himself at this point. He can't even write women to like clamor for him. It's just like, well, she's the love interest. I guess she thinks I'm nice. <laughs> That's true. It is like the love interest is like the most unearned love interest of all time. <laughs> I'd ever seen. Like, how did they even like, was it like a, a blind date? Like, I don't even know how they met or... or no, she's yeah, the woman at the from car, the car wash. At the car, yeah, 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 yeah. Or the car he, uh, filling station. And he rather. fucks up her car and he gets his... You know, it, it is just a 
can't stop messing up, but you know, I, I guess you know he stays stays with a girl. Sometimes so you him. find a woman who loves a guy who messes up. Just because you're nice. Yeah, that's yeah. all it takes. Nice guys finish first. That's yeah. the message of this movie. <laughs> uh, one last gag that I wanted to talk about. Or, or, there's two more things, really. There's one, the disco scene where he's working as a DJ. Oh, yeah, wait, and that was next level. That that yeah. this is the best scene of the movie. He's yeah. working as a DJ. And he just wanders onto the dance floor, and then in a dissolve, he turns back into a version of kind of like the Buddy Love character from The Nutty Professor. Just the total swagged out Jerry in a disco suit this time around instead of a 50s clean cut outfit. Uh, and he's just like, or 60s Nutty Professor rather, but he's just like grooving and everyone's looking at him. There's a great point of view shot where everyone like turns around and is like looking at you, the audience essentially, but looking at Jerry and out of nowhere when he's dancing after this incredible slow build it just cuts just like that back to him in his dorky clothes dancing like a dork and his boss is like you gotta get out of here get back <laughs> to the dirt tables and beautiful yeah no that scene's uh, just that next level you know it's hey you work a job you're like you know I wish I was great you know sometimes you, you stare out the window you're like Damn, I wish I was I was partying with a bunch of people right now. I wish or I was at the great. hydraulics. Yeah, store. I wish I was at the hydraulics store instead of here. But you know, you're not it's a little off my preference. Some <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's just for us. <laughs> but uh, I, I think yeah, that's like a, as a movie that really seems to like dig into like you know, just you know, work kind of being you know a drudge and kind of a grind. Like I think that's a a fun aspect, kind of like you know, just the fantasies you have when you're bored. Exactly. One last gag I want to shout out when Jerry's being interviewed by his boss at the postal office for the first time and he has a box of Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> and Jerry is examining the donuts for about three minutes, it feels like, before the boss says, Would you like a donut? Where are they? Oh, I mean, yes. <laughs> no, that's 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 a shot. Like that was him at full form, like full, that's like so good, firing at all cylinders. Because like fully the kid mode, you know, yeah, Jerry exactly. as the kid just goofing off, even though he's like fifty years old at this point or older, actually, maybe. That was his fastball. Like you know, you're, yeah. you're getting a lot of slower stuff throughout, but like occasionally he'll just punch something into where it's like oh, he still does kind of have it like that at least yeah. in some scenes yeah exactly he could still squeal where are they yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's you know you got to bust that out just to let the fans know yeah um i love this movie it's a four bullet classic for me maybe it's stranger than it is good but i still think it's a hell of a picture yeah four bullets as well i mean just as a big fan of jerry lewis right and you know, kind of a similar thing when I was saying, you know, for Limelight, you know, it's like this is a good movie to watch. Even though, like, you kind of watching his Tashlin stuff, I even think that's enough to kind of chew on and kind of like, all right, I've seen the young Jerry. It's like, let's see, let's see old Jerry. And like, uh, he really gives, uh, you know, he brings that oldness, that orneriness to it. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's interesting that, like yeah, it is. It seems like I don't know if he was intentionally kind of going for that mood. I think he, he is a little bit, but then I feel like with cracking up, it's like he doubles down on it in a way and finds a more cohesive way to, you know, tell it. But uh, yeah, interesting movie. JT, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going four bullets as well. I mean, it's like if I'm this on board for Jerry at this point, I'm sure I'm going to love the rest of his filmography. But this is just so strange 
sad and weird in just like a way where I mean I think the low production value just like yeah. adds so much more to it where it's like there's a weird like hollowness that's like not that does like in the post office that's like not quite like the feel of like a big Hollywood set but mm-hmm. it's still like fake like when he like pulls off the door I think as he's like <laughs> leaving after like uh a, like an early interview it's just like I don't know. It's that long, drawn out, like slow, awkward thing that just like with him as a large old man is just mm-hmm. kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Where are they? You can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. And we actually have one this week nice. from Michael Carroll. Subject line what we talk about when we talk about formalism. Boys, love the show. I said it in the comments, but it bears repeating. I was recovering from a work-related head injury earlier this summer, and listening to your Fairly Brothers series was perfect company as I nursed my concussion. Well, that actually means a lot. I'm glad you're feeling better too, Michael. But he goes on to ask this question. The word formalism does a lot of work on your show. What does it mean to you? Well, that's kind of a uh, silly question, so you'll get a silly answer. Uh, no, just kidding. It's, you know, <laughs> get I mean, roasted, bitch. Yeah, if you catch us messing up and saying that a filmmaker is doing formalism, then go ahead and make fun of us. But we know, or at least I know, that it's more of a, uh, a critical school of thought that values the form of the art rather than its content. So if you're talking about a painting, maybe you just look at it and say, I love the use of color, the use of line, the shapes, the depth uh, that is assumed by, or, you know, uh, pretended to be there. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, the fake use of depth, because it's a painting. Come on, man. You could see the other side of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, this shit's not deep. Uh, rather than the meaning of the painting. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're not full on formalists. We talk about plot quite a bit. But I think that when you talk about film, you got to talk about the form. And yeah, sometimes maybe I'll mistakenly use form instead of style. But it's, you know, sometimes we're splitting hairs here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, we got to, you said it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We throw around a lot of $10 words on this podcast and, uh. One day we'd like for you to throw $10 into the Patreon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Patreon.com slash extended clips where you can support us for $2 a month. You'll get a bonus episode every single week. Our next one is about the Thomas Crown Affair, the film by John McTiernan. Free John McTiernan, by the way. <laughs> I, I did not. We'll get into it. But we'll I, get into I, it. I did not know he was incarcerated or was. He so. was incarcerated, yeah, but yeah, he's yeah. still metaphorically incarcerated yeah. by Hollywood. But we'll talk about it on the Patreon um, the After Hours feed is our podcast on there. And I mean, well, not to, I mean, again, I don't want to spoil anything that we can cover on the Patreon. It's like, of all the guys in Hollywood to be thrown in jail and like <laughs> taken down, yeah. it's like, what did, what did he know? That's like, how why you did know they have to take him out? Yeah. There. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so anyway, that's that. JT, what are we doing next week? Oh, you know what, guys? You know who I hate? <laughs> Who do you, JT, who do you hate? I freaking hate Justin Bieber. It's like (laughs) you go everywhere and you hear that goddamn song, Baby. That's true. And it got me thinking about. (laughs) It got me thinking about babies. I'm just. Babies are on the brain. And like, you know. We we need an old fashioned kind of an episode. I want to return to form. I want to return to tradition. It's like. I've been thinking a lot I want to about return to your state of being a baby. Exactly. And that 
also like the state of the podcast at when we like when we first started at the infancy of the podcast yeah. exactly fresh fist and i was thinking about john voigt's performance in brats amazing and so that informed my pick uh <laughs> for the b movie uh which is uh, i love the long path we've taken to <laughs> i lo- i to love doing justify this. the decision i like it i like it it's well it's, thought out uh, Super Babies, Baby Geniuses yes. 2 by Bob Clark of uh, Black Christmas fame. Bob Clark's a really fucking good director. Um, I, yeah. I mean, we'll see with Super Babies, <laughs> Baby Geniuses <laughs> 2. It might not be the best sample of his work. But, um, but John Voight is the villain in that. And, you know, I wanted to pair it with something uh, fucked up and, like, intense and art house. And okay. we have uh, Peter Greenaway's 1993, The Baby of Macan. <laughs> Which okay. is like uh, it was banned in the U.S. for a while. It's like there's it's pretty explicit from the sounds of it. A lot of uh, violence. Um, it seems pretty unpleasant. So wow, I can't wait to watch this unpleasant movie. <laughs> I think I saw Super and then watch Baby Geniuses. <laughs> I definitely saw Super Baby Geniuses too in theaters. By the way, that's a, that's a memory I have. So that's one of the first movies I can remember seeing in theaters. So shout out to Bob Clark. Well, shout out to Bob Clark. Um, We'll see you next week. You'll be at the height of your success, and he'll call on you and tell you that he met you at the Duchess of Who's It's Supper Party. Won't I recognize him? Oh, no. He's grown a beard. Musicians do. He'll tell you he's composed a ballet for you. Then you'll realize who he is. You'll tell him who you are and how you met and how you waited on him and gave him extra music sheets that night, you'll dine together on a balcony, overlooking the tents. It'll be summer, when you'll be wearing pink muslin, and you'll be conscious of its fragrance, and all London will be dreamy and beautiful, and in the elegant melancholy of twilight, as the candles flutter, and make your eyes dance. He will tell you that he loves you. And you will tell him you have always loved him. Where are they?